We are standing on the grounds of the Pitchfork Music Festival, big music festival here in Chicago. It's outdoors. Yes. And you probably go to these outdoor music festivals. They're nice and all, but the water is $8. The beer is $10, and it's usually terrible beer. Everything is overpriced. John, here, found a way around it. John, why don't you tell us what you did? Uh, Me and a a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, we buried a treasure at this year's uh, Pitchfork Music Festival. We call it a treasure. It was, was, there was no chest. So, so you came to the park where the music festival was being held, uh, took all the things you wanted to have at the festival, and, and buried them underground. Well, I mean, yeah. You know, some gum, uh, some water, uh, I think three pints of alcohol. Uh, and then a couple of five-hour energies. We had, at some point, we were just kind of like, this? Yeah, let's put that in there. A pair of sunglasses. Uh, and you, a couple put, of, you buried sunglasses? Yeah, I buried a pair of sunglasses, yeah. And we actually, we buried it here. It's uh, under a tree. So we're, we're looking at a big tree, and it's it's got one of those sort of circles of wood chips. So that, that kind of helped you conceal your hole, you're saying? I, I think so. Part of it was unintentional. Uh, when when we showed up, uh, this was about about nine thirty, nine forty five uh, on Wednesday night. There were they had already set everything was already set up. We thought we'd be there pretty early, and all the stages were there, tents. There were things everywhere, uh, and there was actually a security guard on his cell phone as we kind of walked up, and he said, "Sorry, park's closed. You guys can't come in here." And uh, so I was just like, oh, is it okay if we just walk through? We're just walking through, like that kind of thing. Because we had a little backpack with us. So, so when you when you buried it, there was, you said there was a security guard. You guys tried to play it cool. When you unburied it, there I imagine were ten thousand people around going to this music festival. How, how'd you get it up here where we were? There, there were just some people kind of hanging out and. Uh, I remember there was a guy kind of eating a slice of pizza that was standing like not more than five feet from us when we both kind of sat down and like got excited the minute we sat down because we, we were like, ah, it's here, it's here, like that. And he's just kind of looking at us. And then I, all I had to do was dig a little bit uh, just with my hand and there it was. It was our, our booty, our treasure. So there you go. If you're attending an outdoor music festival, you don't want to pay the prices. Get there early and bury your supplies. Hey, you know what we should do? We should bury something, and whoever finds it gets to keep it. We can we can make clues up, too. We'll put clues throughout this week's episode. Uh, if you figure it out, go dig it up, and, and it's yours. It's your treasure from us. This is How to Do Everything. I'm Ian. And I'm Mike. On today's show, we'll tell you how to become a blue man. And we'll tell you how to zombie-proof your automobile. But first, if you're paying attention to the news, you know Mitt Romney is about to announce his running mate. His team is furiously vetting all of their potential picks. So how do you get through this when you know that someone is digging into every corner of your past? Evan Bayh is on the line with us now. He was governor of Indiana, later a senator from Indiana, and he has actually been through this process of being vetted uh, as a potential vice president. I was vetted first by Al Gore and then uh, by Barack Obama, so I went through it twice. And what was that like? What what kind of things are they doing to you? Well, anyone who's had a colonoscopy can understand what it's like to be vetted for vice president. Right. I mean, there, there's virtually nothing that is unexplored. By the time the uh, process is done, uh, you give them all of your financial records, of course, uh, way beyond those that are publicly available, so all your tax returns and that sort of thing, uh, all your health records, uh, just just about everything. Uh, so you fill out a written document. You go through uh, several 
uh, oral interviews. Of course, then today what's changed is the Internet's out there, and then there are just loads of completely unsubstantiated, untrue things in the cyber world uh, that they have to uh, ask you about. So in my case, they were all untrue, but they have to ask you about them. Then there are two catch-all questions. The last two questions on the form uh, were, uh, number one, is there anything that is potentially uh, embarrassing to you or the nominee that we haven't asked you about? That's number one. Number two, my favorite one was the last one, though. Uh, is there, are there any statements, anything out there, true or untrue, that might be potentially embarrassing uh, to you or to the nominee? So I called them up and I said, well, I'm reading this and I want to ask you, you're, you're interested in things that are untrue as well. And they said, yes, we want to know it just completely unsubstantiated rumors as well. So that's how extensive it is. And then finally, the whole process culminates with an interview with the uh, nominee. When they ask you that catch-all question, is there, is there anything in your past that would be embarrassing to the candidate, how long do you have to think about that? Well, I guess it depends on your past. Yeah. In uh, my case, thankfully, since I grew up in a public family and didn't want to embarrass my parents, I kind of, you know, I'm not perfect, but I kind of kept things, you know, as much in the middle of the road as I could. Uh, but when I sat down with President Obama, then Senator Obama, in his hotel room in Kansas City, uh, you know, I'd flown out there and uh, under, you know, uh, they kept it all very hush-hush and went up through the freight elevator. No one knew I was there. And he came in after a long day of campaigning. We had cheeseburgers together and then sat down and talked for about three hours. So uh, toward the end of it all, there was, you know, there was the huge dossier on me sitting there. And he kind of put his hand on it and said, you know, there's nothing in here that bothers me. But if there's anything we haven't found out about, uh, that you think might be a problem, you need to tell me because it'll become public. He said, in his case, they were even talking to people he'd gone to first grade with. So I'm thinking, gosh, what about that scuffle I got into in the playground in third grade? I wonder if I need to tell him about that. Uh, but in any event, so he said, uh, you know, you need to tell me if there's anything. And so I said, well, uh, I said, Brock, there are a couple things that you guys didn't ask about I probably should tell you about, and I did. And he said to me, he looked at me, he said, that's it? I said, yeah, that's it. And he said, uh, well, you haven't, you haven't lived much of a life, have you? <laughs> so I guess it just depends on your background and how complicated it is. There's almost a reverse uh, Stockholm syndrome that takes place. At least it did in both of my cases. I had, there's an entire team of people appointed to you. It's headed up by an individual. In, in my case, both times it was by a very able, a very able lawyer. Uh, he then is assisted by a team of accountants and a team of investigators. And so they go through everything. And uh, in both cases, we got to be close because they knew as much about me as anybody. Well, that's what a funny relationship to have with somebody, to think that here's this guy whose sole purpose is to kind of uncover all these weird, quirky things about you. Yet, because of the nature of that job, you guys become buddies, and he knows everything about you. Granted, you don't know anything about him. It's completely one-sided. Yeah, other than he was just a very able lawyer, yeah, I didn't know anything about his personal life, and he knew everything about me. I mean, literally everything. Was there anyone that the investigators contacted you that you were surprised to hear from? Like any, like, did they like go for like old girlfriends and stuff? Oh, sure. Oh, they do all that, and they contact people you were with in college and high school and all that sort of thing. So, you know, your friends then, uh, you know, call in and say, "Hey, you should know these people. They're out asking about you." And you go, "It's okay. I gave them permission <laughs> to tell them whatever. Uh, tell them whatever they want to know." It's the people you don't hear from I suppose you got to worry about. Right. 
Well, Governor, you've been through this now, I guess, twice in your life. What, what advice would you give to the people who are currently being vetted that, so that they can get through it? My best advice is just to be open and honest. And if it happens, it's a great opportunity to make history and try and serve the country. And if it doesn't happen, it's really kind of an honor to be one of the final two or three people uh, to, you know, for, to have someone, in this case, a nominee for president of the United States, think that you've done something substantial enough with your life and you have the character and so forth to be worthy of um, being considered that highly. And, hey, you get a free meal with the guy, right? You get a free meal, and in my case, we got to talk some sports, which was a lot of fun. And he likes having ESPN on when uh, you go into his hotel room or on the campaign bus. I don't think I'm spilling any... Uh, Wait, uh, so while, while he's essentially interviewing you for the position of vice president of the United States, he had the game on in the background? Well, the sound was turned off. It was <laughs> off to the side. But, no, he loves sports. That's his way of relaxing. And I love sports, too, so we had, uh, we had that in common. Hey, what was Al Gore watching when you guys were talking? Well, we had dinner at the vice president's residence, so he didn't have, he wasn't watching anything. He was watching me. So we talked policy. We talked uh, politics. And uh, in that case, I was one of the final four uh, under consideration. But I don't think I was one of the final two in... Um, the case of uh, President Obama, uh, I had the strong impression it went right down to the end, even so much so that there were reports, uh, and this is kind of a, this will play uh, games with your mind, They're, they actually printed up bumper stickers for the different tickets, including, in my case, an Obama buy bumper sticker, and in the case of Governor Kane, a, an Obama Kane bumper sticker, and Joe Biden, of course, who ended up being selected, we were the final three. So there was actually a report out there that they'd printed up the bumper sticker, and when you hear that, you're thinking, hmm, my chances aren't so bad. But then you realize they did it for everybody. Yeah. Well, Governor, thank you so much for your time. And uh, I think this is good advice for, for the nominees. Uh, well, I hope so. I wish whoever it is uh, the best of luck. And uh, for those who aren't picked, it's an honor to be considered. And, and life goes on and is, uh, is a good thing, too. Okay, so the first clue on our treasure hunt is this great song from a band I love. What city is this band named? I don't, I, I don't want to give it away. All right, McKay, what can we help you with? I had a question, and that was, uh, you know, how do you, how do you become a blue man? You mean of the hilarious. blue man, the blue man group? Yeah, in the in the blue man group. Okay. How does one become a blue man? This is something you want to do. <laughs> well, sure, I'd love to do it. How many marshmallows can you shove into your mouth? <laughs> Oddly enough, I think I know that answer. I think, you know, at one point it was like seven. I think they got me beat, though. I would think, yeah, I think that that's something that in the while you're trying to, you know, auditioning or getting ready to audition, you can kind of start working on shoving more and more <laughs> marshmallows in there. Right. Well, you know, we're, we, uh, we can help you with this. We're going to track down a, a blue man, figure out his secrets, and uh, hopefully by the next time we, we talk to you, you'll be um, covered in, in blue paint. Sounds great. All right. Joining us now in the studio is an actual, a blue man himself, Matt. Hey, Matt, is that right? Is that, do we, is, do we refer to you as, as a blue man? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, right. You're just a blue man. Even when you're not blue. Is there a hierarchy or tier within the blue man group? Yeah, definitely. Really? Are there, are there yeah. blue boys? There's more like seasoned blue men. 
you know, like the advertisements you'll see around, like, like I'll know their names. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, yeah, it's that guy. Yeah. I feel bad about this. I feel like, uh, is this a horrible thing? The, they all look alike to me, the uh-huh. blue men. Yeah, that's kind of the goal. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So it's not bluest or? Um, yeah, yeah, all the blues the same. Okay. <laughs> all right. So what's the process like in, in becoming a member um, of the group. For, for me, I see, I'd never seen the show before, um, and it was just, I, I think you can either audition by, like, open call, they have those sometimes, or um, for me, I was just, like, sent out to audition, just like, are you interested in this? I was like, yeah, that'd be weird. Yeah. Like, what are they going to make me do, kind of thing. And what do, what do they make you do? You um, walk in there and, and in, in the Yeah, the initial one, it's like a, a drumming assessment. And they have like one of the one of the drummers for the show, you know, was set up with like a little drum pad, and so he'd you know do a pattern, and then you'd have to repeat it back at him, and and then he'd kind of you know make a note on a piece of paper. Or something. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So aside from the drumming assessment, where you have to repeat the guy's pattern, mm-hmm. what other uh, hoops do they make you jump jump through? Um, yeah. So so what you'll hear a lot is people said like, oh, they made me do eye acting, these weird eye scenarios. So they'll say to you, like, I want you to go from uh, happy to angry with your eyes, and you'll have to do that? <laughs> Pretty much, wow. yeah. Do they, do they have a, uh, a, a word amongst your fellow <laughs> blue men that they call that when you, that first time you put the makeup on? Well, I mean, I, you know, they never really had a, maybe going blue. He's going blue, I think is kind of the term. <laughs> oh, really? Is yeah. that right? Yeah, it's like, are you going blue tonight? No, I'm not going blue tonight. <laughs> Are you going blue tomorrow night? Yeah, I'm going blue tomorrow. <laughs> and then we kind of do a handshake, and then I'll see him tomorrow. Let me ask you this question. What is the longest period of time uh, between the end of a performance and you realizing you still had some blue makeup on? Um, it, it goes for, uh, it can go, I think, for, uh, for an inexperienced uh, uh, going blue person such yeah. as myself. Yeah. Um, you know, a, a couple days the, the, under the fingernails was huge because even though you're wearing uh, gloves, when you get, you know you have to uh, just really when you're wiping it off, you kind of get down all nitty gritty. So yeah. Uh, yeah, it gets under the fingernails, and then the eyeliner is kind of intense. Mm-hmm. So uh, so you know, if I was going clubbing or something afterwards, yeah. so just whatever and just yeah. keep it on. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Just keep the whole thing on. Just keep the, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that yeah, that wasn't allowed. All right. Well, thank you, Matt. Thank you. All right, uh, your next clue for to, to help find the treasure we buried. It, it is near the wheel, named for the man who said this. Cameron, what have you seen today? Nothing good. <laughs> nothing, no, nothing. This. What do you mean, nothing good? We've seen everything good. We've seen the whole city. Ma- Matthew uh, Broderick. It's, it's not the not the Broderick wheel. What you're hearing right now is a scene from The Walking Dead on AMC uh, in which a zombie is trying to sort of tear through a car window to to get at a woman, a human woman. Now, it's unlikely that this is probably ever going to happen, but nevertheless, uh, as a tie-in with The Walking Dead, Hyundai has created a zombie-proof car. It's just a concept car, but it got us thinking, how would you zombie-proof your automobile? 
On the line with us now is Mickey Maynard. She's the former Detroit bureau chief of the New York Times. She also uh, writes for Jalopnik. So, Mickey, what do you recommend? Well, first of all, you have to remember there are no zombie-proof cars. There, at best, are zombie-resistant cars because, Uh. as we know, zombies have incredible powers. And so far that I can tell, unless you're talking about President Obama's limousine, there is not a car on the road that will resist a zombie that really wants to get you. Right. So we can, the best we can hope for is to forestall yeah, a zombie forestall from killing Yeah, is us. a good word. And I would say, we were actually talking about this yesterday, because as you know, zombies have really great hearing and the sense of smell. Yeah. So it would have to almost be a Tesla or the Volt or the Prius. You have to have a very quiet car. So the other thing you really have to have is the ability to, you know, drive that proverbial stake through the head. And we kind of figured a 1959 Cadillac hybrid would be your best bet at a zombie-proof car. So why, I, why, the, why the 59 Caddy? Well, have you ever seen the fins on a 59 Caddy? It's a good brain spear. One of the reasons why Ralph Nader was made the point that he did, no pun intended, was that if you read Unsafe at Any Speed, there's quite a lot in there about Cadillac fins impaling people at parking meters. Oh. It's kind of gross. Um, now, seriously speaking, of course, there yeah. are some things coming out on cars that could help. Um, I just did a piece for Jalopnik.com about a new system that's on the Volvo, and they essentially put it on so that drivers wouldn't run into reindeer and moose and deer. It's a collision avoidance system. Okay. And if there's something in the road and you don't see it, first of all, an alarm goes off. And then if you still are not responding, it will automatically slow the brakes on the car. Wouldn't the better technology be something that would then actually increase your speed as you approach the zombie so that you would then plow into it and like wipe it out? Well, that would assume your car is able to do that. Now, think about the appearance of a lot of cars these days. You know, we're going for that Euro look. And Mm -hmm. a lot of those cars like the Ford Focus, think about the Fiat 500. They're these little round, cutesy little cars. And you can't have round and cutesy and fight zombies. You have to have some points going on on the car. Is there anything um, out there that might make the car tougher to, to help us, you know, keep them out? This is a real conundrum because one of the things we're seeing that car companies do is turn increasingly to aluminum. So cars are getting lighter. Cars are getting a little more flexible. That's not what you want fighting zombies. No. Yeah, that's a problem. All right. Well, Mickey, I think you've given us enough to uh, at least attempt to carry on through a zombie apocalypse with a car. All right. Thanks, guys. Take care, Mickey. Bye. All right, for uh, what, one more clue to help find our hidden treasure. And I, I understand for this clue, uh, Mike has written a poem. Well, it's actually, it's more of a riddle. It goes like this. Pretty flowers in planters look grand. Number 20 holds the treasure. Oh, yeah. That does it for today's show. What we learned today, Mike? I learned that it's kind of hard to have a dinner with, with President Obama because it sounds like he's probably watching TV. Yeah, I was thinking, you know that famous photo of the night of the that they raided Osama bin Laden's compound? They, we assume they were watching the raid. They might have just been watching the game. Or worse, what if he had a little TV off to the side with just the game for him? 
What'd you learn, Ian? I learned I can I can bury something uh, other than my feelings. I, c- I can bury alcohol. Do you think that's what pirates did too? Do did you think they also, like, do you think that there are some treasure maps where you get to the, you dig out X marks the spots and just, just some sadness? You know that hook. All that hook is. All Captain's hook is. That's just a frown when you look at it, right? Turn that hook upside down, Captain. How to Do Everything is produced by Blythe Hega with technical direction from Lorna White. Our intern this week is Mackenzie Van Englenhoven. And she was actually born zombie-proof. Yep, she has great big fins. Get us your questions at howto at npr.org. And visit our website, howtodoeverything.org. We'll also provide all the clues that we listed here for the treasure on our website. I'm Ian. And I'm Mike. Thanks. Thanks. One thing about that last clue, Mike's poem riddle, um, the 20, we said the 20th planter. 20th planter, which... By 20, we mean clumps of planters. A planter is a separate box of flowers. You want to count clusters of boxes, not individual planters. It, technically, it's the 57th individual planter box. What was the line? It, it's grand. What was that line? Planters in boxes look grand. Grand. Capital G.